podcast, New City is a church in Bath, Maine, that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching through Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27, and the sermon title is The 70 Weeks of Daniel. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Lord, we need you today. Thank you for your word that it is true, God. And this, this text is certainly one that has um, many depths to it. And so I need your wisdom and um, your guidance as I preach and share and deliver your word. And this, we all as a congregation, we need the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts and teach us and point us to the meaning of this text and the application of it, Lord. Thank you, God, that you are good. And above all things, you have done everything in Christ to save sinners like us from our sins and give us righteousness everlasting and peace with God the Father. Thank you, Jesus, that of all that is confusing in the world, that is not confusing to your children, God. We have peace with you. We give you glory for that. Lord, open this word to us. Give us understanding. Lead us and teach us. And, uh, oh, God, um, be glorified in this time. We, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I hope you guys are ready. Um, just as we were kind of anticipating Daniel 7, Daniel 7 was a big text that we spent a lot of time on, of course. Now Daniel 9 is also just as weighty, if not more. In fact, many scholars, most scholars, most Bible commentators would say this is, in fact, the most difficult, complex passage in all of Daniel, if not all of the Bible, in terms of its weight, what it means in terms of biblical prophecy, what it means in terms of the coming of Christ, and then also just in the sheer amount of disagreements that there are. People cannot seem to line up on what this means. It is loving biblical believers in Christ that are coming to various conclusions. All of them are outside of the scope of a first-tier issue. Nobody's disagreeing on the gospel And in who Jesus is, this is not what I'm talking about, but this is a very difficult passage. I'm going to just invite you a little bit into that world because this week, as as I've been studying it, certainly there's um, no part of me that thinks that that I could interpret this text or know everything there is to know just by me and myself going, okay plumb the depths of my knowledge and I'll figure this out. No, 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 no. I'm happy to lean on other teachers. And when you do that, in a place like Daniel chapter 9, you discover uh, a lot. And it's, uh, it gets kind, of, gets kind of confusing. But let me just invite you into that. This is a guy named John Wolverd. And he says this, the interpretation of the revelation given to Daniel concerning the 70 weeks constitutes one of the determining factors in the whole system of prophecy. The intention given to it by all schools of interpretation and the attacks upon the authenticity of the book itself combine to focus the white light of investigation upon it. The interpretation of this passage inevitably colors all other prophetic views and a proper understanding of it is the sin qua non of any student of prophecy. No pressure there. Another person, uh, this is another uh, theologian, Sam Storms, says this about it. One might well argue that Daniel 9, 24 to 27, is both the most complex and the most crucial text in either testament, bearing on the subject of biblical prophecy. Its complexity is questioned only by those who have not studied it 
or perhaps by those whose conclusions concerning its meaning were predetermined by unspoken theological, theological commitments. That Daniel 9 is as crucial as I have suggested can hardly be denied. And then, one more quote for you from Charles Spurgeon. He says, I shall not occupy your time by attempting to fix the beginning and the end of the period intended by the 70 weeks, and the seven weeks, and the three score, and two weeks. That is a deep study. He's, he's right. Requiring much research and learning, and I conceive that the discussion of such a subject would be of no great practical use to us this Sabbath morning. You will be better nourished upon the Lord himself than upon times and seasons. And that's why I am willing to wear big old faces of Spurgeon on my shirts, because he's just awesome. He's so gospel-centered, and he was such a pastor of pastors, the prince of preachers. And you could tell as he was tackling that text that Sunday morning back in the 1800s, he's going with a potentially 3,000 people in his audience. I don't need you just concerned about times and seasons. I want you to see Jesus Christ in this text. And that's what's so, so great about Spurgeon. But in all seriousness, I agree quite a bit here with Spurgeon. I confess also that as I was studying that I was often getting lost in the weeds of numbers and disagreements. And if you were to take a study, a dive into studying this for a week, I'm sure you would come to the same conclusion. The number of people with different interpretations, the amount of math equations that people put in front of you to try to figure out exact scenarios. It's mind-boggling how many numbers are being thrown around when studying this text. But keep this in mind. As we've been doing through our entire study of Daniel, the question is this. What was Daniel's original intention when writing this? More specifically, what was Gabriel's intention when going to Daniel to de deliver this prophecy as an answer to his prayer? So again, context is really, really, really important. Daniel was receiving this from the angel Gabriel. What was Gabriel's purpose? That's an important question. And most importantly, why did the Spirit of God inspire this text? Why did he send Gabriel? And what was he saying in that context to Daniel in that day for that time? Those three things I think we need, they're so crucial. They're so crucial because as we said other times in this study, it is our, usually it's our mode to say first, how is this for our day? What does this mean for me? But biblical interpretation is best done in context. What was the context for its time? Was it really God's desire that we could only know the meaning of this text by knowing the correct math? Now, for some of you, you know exactly what I'm saying. Some of you who have studied this and have looked into the numbers, you understand. There are many people that go right to the numbers, figuring out what these weeks mean, figuring out exactly when Jesus came, looking at dates and fulfilled prophecy, and it's all very, very impressive. And none of that, I'm saying, is not important, but it's certainly not the most important. And when you look at Daniel's original context, there is no way we can conclude that God was saying, the only way you can understand what this is saying is if you know the math. There's no way that that is God's purpose in this. In fact, by just reading the context, I think we'll find that he tells us right in the text what is the purpose of the 70 weeks. It's right there in the pages that we've already read. These words, first of all, would have been a comfort to Daniel and his people. 
Remember the context already. Daniel is writing. He's in captivity. He's writing to. And what is his audience? His audience is his people, the Jewish people who would go through now a few hundred years between that time that he's writing and the coming of Messiah. Much prophecy would be fulfilled. Kingdoms would rise and fall. Exact um, emperors and empires have already been predicted. And we know that stuff is, is going to come to pass. But these words would have been a comfort to his people, a people to whom Christ had not yet come. So Christ has come, and we look back in faith, and we look upon the, the arrival of Jesus Christ, and we have all these numbers and dates, and we can do these things. But to Daniel, how would this have been a comfort to him there and to his people? They didn't have any of these numbers or these dates that we have today, and yet these words came swiftly from the throne of God by an angel Gabriel as an answer to Daniel's prayer for his people. That also, keep that in mind, is key and is context. Daniel, in the first part of this chapter 9, prayed a prayer of confession and repentance because of the sin of his people, and because of the sin of those people, this exile was upon them, and it had already been 66 years. You remember that? And he was praying desperately for the forgiveness that comes from God and to be freed from that exile. As a response to that prayer, Gabriel comes. 2 Timothy 3.15, let me just read this to you as a reminder. It says, How from a childhood, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Saints, this is true of this text that we are in today. This text is for the equipping of the saints. It is profitable. It is for training. It is for righteousness. And it is, in fact, primarily what Paul was referring to when speaking to Timothy, the Old Testament promises. So let's first draw some insight and application from verses 20 to 23. Then we're going to tackle the purpose of the 70 weeks, which I'm sure many of you are interested to know. What is the point of view that I'm going to be coming from when it comes to the 70 weeks? So, First of all, Daniel's prayer was heard and answered while the words were still in his mouth. Let's look at that, Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. Look at what, this is very, very incredible. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now that just is amazing. They, while the words were still in his mouth, here comes Gabriel, whatever that would have been like, swiftly flying in to deliver this message to Daniel, but says it happened while the words were still in his mouth. Psalm 139.4 says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. I'm sure that Daniel was familiar with that promise. And even more impressed by the glory of God and the, and the intimacy by which God knew Daniel and his plight and his trouble. That before the words were even finished coming from his mouth, he was there. Matthew 6, 8 says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, before we even move on, there is clearly present application for us right now to look at the, 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 the Daniel who's writing these words, the real man of God who is in exile and in trouble and pleading with his God on behalf of his people, and God heard his prayer and sent an angel to minister to him and to help him. 
In this case, God delivered his answer through Gabriel. We may not ever see this sort of thing, but certainly God hears your prayers and he does know your words on your mouth before they're even formed. So church, find comfort in that. The things that you're seeking the Lord about, the things that you're praying about, the things that you're desperate to see God move in, whether he shows up in this way or he waits and causes you to develop in your patience and your faith, trust this word from the Lord that he knows what you need before you even ask it. And find comfort in the grace of your Father who is in heaven. These words out of Daniel's mouth were a desperate plea for prayer. An angel shows up, and this is the same angel who would deliver the news about John the, excuse me, about John the Baptist to Zechariah much later, and also the news about Jesus to Mary, the same angel. Isn't that cool? This, this period of time now here in the 500 B.C. time period, angel, the angel Gabriel would later deliver the very, another message about the Messiah to Mary and also the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist, which is just really cool. Gabriel had some incredible tasks to fill. I don't know if you spend often times thinking about that realm that we cannot see, that there are angels is an amazing thought, right? These ministering spirits, and they, are, they do the bidding of the Lord. But the point here is that Gabriel was dispatched when a word went out at the beginning of his plea for mercy. That's what the text tells us. And now he is there to give Daniel insight and understanding as to what will happen with Israel and how God will fulfill his promise. Look at what it says in the text. Beginning in verse 22, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. Clearly, Gabriel's desire was that Daniel would understand from these words and have insight from these words about what? About what is about to be said. At the beginning of your plea for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the words and understand. Second time, he has mentioned, I want you to understand. I want you to have insight. And this is the news that that Gabriel is delivering. And by that news, that he would know these promises that are for Israel. Look at verse, the second half of verse 23. He says, I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. So not only does he know the words that are on Daniel's lips before they come out of his mouth, before they're even finished coming out of his mouth, he knows them, but also look at the love of God here. I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. God's word to Daniel came out of his love for Daniel. Notice that. Take note of that. His word to Daniel was out of his love for Daniel. And this love was delivered by an incredible, mighty angel, Gabriel, delivering the news to Daniel that God loves him. Just try to put yourself in that spot for a moment. And we we often struggle to know the love of God and be confident that God loves us because of our circumstances. And here we have a word from God of Daniel, certainly in a similar position than what we've been into, if not even compounded even more because of the seriousness of where he is and how long he's been in exile. And this word would have come like such a comfort to him. Oh, Daniel, you are greatly loved. And this is why God chooses to communicate with any of us. 
This is why God asks us to pray and why He answers prayer. This is why God is mindful of us, as the psalmist says. Why are you mindful of us? Who, is, who are you that you are mindful of us? Us, sinners. How we would even consider us in our lowly state, and it's because He loves us. I mean, but that's just a simple reminder that you need to know today that you need to be reminded of, of his love for you. He loves you. He sees you. He sees you when you're sitting alone. He sees you when you're in, your, when you're in despair, when you mourn. He sees you when you need wisdom. He sees you, and he loves you. Daniel has been in exile. He has missed, clearly missed his family and missed his people. Remember, he's been in exile since a teenager. There's no longer a temple for him to fulfill and do what he has been instructed to do as an obedient young Jewish boy and now a Jewish man. No temple ripped from his homeland in a pagan culture. No sacrifices. He has served under wicked kings and he's endured the hardship of waiting on the Lord. How long has he waited? He, we know from last time he's been waiting for 66 years. How many things, what have you waited on for 66 years? Maybe some of you could have stories for me. I've waited for this thing or this so-and-so or that person's salvation for 66 years. You've prayed and you've prayed and you've waited. Lord, how long? We say that, don't we? Lord, how long? How long will this culture go on? How long will you allow XYZ to happen? How long, oh Lord? And Daniel has had many of those thoughts, I'm sure, under these wicked kings, waiting on the Lord's fulfillment as he grows older and older, and he has been faithful to God. So keep Daniel in the, at the forefront of our thoughts in this example. Certainly, Daniel has been faithful to God in the midst of a lot of trouble. And then he cries out to the Lord for mercy upon his people in the first part of this chapter. And Gabriel swiftly, it says, flies to him to tell him what God is going to do as an answer to that prayer for God's forgiveness. And what does he hear first? Daniel, you are greatly loved. That's the first thing that he hears. You are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the words and understand the vision, Daniel. How often we try to consider all the details of our lives and ask God for all the answers. We're trying to figure everything out, and we just forget in the midst of our problems. We, forget, we fail to simply remember that he loves us. I would challenge you to say how often would that be the very comfort and balm that you need in the midst of your trouble, not by trying to figure out all of the stuff, but just remember that God loves you. I'm talking to children of God here, the, the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You have the love of God that has been lavished upon your life. To simply know I'm greatly loved. You love me. How do I know he loves me? because of Jesus, because of the cross. And I know this. To simply remember that he loves us. Do you think that for one second Daniel was trying to push this aside as a secondary issue to get to the good stuff that was coming? We look at Daniel chapter 9 and we might go, yeah, 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 he's loved. Now I want to get to the weeks of the 70 weeks. Yeah, 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 he's loved. But man, what do the 70 weeks mean? Do you think Daniel was thinking that? Can you imagine, as this is happening and taking place, what it would have been like to be Daniel and receive that message from a holy God that from the throne of God comes an angel to say what? You're greatly loved. I know I'm harping on this for a little bit. But that's the good stuff. That is the good stuff. It's all good, right? 
all of Scripture, breathed out by God and profitable, but there is no way that this would not have floored Daniel. Come on, Gabriel, give me the math. I want to know the equations and the algorithms. Come on, I've got to figure this stuff out. No, an angel from heaven just told him that he is greatly loved by God. So let's not diminish this from the context of what's happening here. In fact, we're even going to come back to that by the end of this to remember that in this span of time that Gabriel delivers this message, I am positive that Daniel would have had that reverberating in his mind for even the very reason why this prophecy is being given to him on behalf of his people Israel because of the love of God. And when we understand what the text in the context is telling us, and we come to understand that the purpose of the 70 weeks, it makes sense all within this idea of God's love for his people. This entire prophecy from Gabriel delivered to Daniel a response to confessional and repentant prayer and motivated by the love of the Father to rescue and redeem his people. If you could just kind of encapsulate the 70 weeks into the, in a, a phrase, that pretty much sums it up. God's love to redeem his people, not just ethnic Israel, but true Israel, all who will ever believe in him, including Jews and Gentiles, from every nation, tribe, and tongue, that is his purpose, and God is delivering this to Daniel. So church, you are greatly loved this morning. Please just know that. Take that from the Lord and from the Spirit of God this morning. You who are weak and weary, God's strength is made perfect in your weakness and he loves you. If you're weak because of life and circumstances and hardship, if you're weak right now, confess it to the Lord. I'm weak, Lord. And know that he is made perfect. His strength is perfected in your weakness as you give glory to him in the midst of that place. I'm willing to bet that there's something that's anxious on each person's heart for some reason in this room today. So just give that to the Lord. He, he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And it is out of this that, the, that Gabriel's words flow right into the next verse, verse 24. Remember, these chapter breaks and verses, they weren't there. Gabriel would have just said, you are greatly loved to understand these visions. And then this, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. So here in verse 24, we have the purpose of the 70 weeks. This is the purpose of the 70 weeks. He says it. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. What? To finish the transgression. And then he gives these six things or three couplets that are going to be fulfilled with the parameters being this 70 weeks. Now, when you look at this word 70 weeks, you're like, 70 weeks, that's not very long, right? But 77s. 77s, and based on other places in Scripture, Leviticus teaches this uh, jubilee period and these years that were looked at in a very similar way, that there would be 70 weeks of years. And so that's why most scholars, actually all scholars, pretty much agree that these 77s are speaking of 77s or 70 weeks of years, so a total of 490 years. I did not need a calculator for that. I can figure that part out. Seventy weeks are decreed. Four hundred and ninety years are decreed for your people. That, that 70 sets of seven 
meaning 70 years, that within that time these things would be accomplished. And I'll say them once again. They would finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint a most holy place. Now there's actually a little bit of debate on what that most holy place is actually referring to because it could actually mean a most holy, period. Anoint the most holy holy. Not necessarily a place, but could also even be a person. And I'm under the mindset that is actually speaking of Jesus Christ. This is not the part of Daniel 9 that gets the most attention. These things don't get the most attention, at least today, in the world of prophecy. It is the verses that follow, the division of seven weeks and the 62 weeks, and then that final week that the angel describes, which is a total of 70 weeks. So let's just pause for a little bit on verse 24. Verse 24 tells us that 70 weeks in total are predicted and that that in those time, in that time, those six things concerning the redemption of God's people would be accomplished. That's what's going to happen. As for whose decree to build the temple marked the beginning of the 70 weeks, there is some disagreement because these are the time stamps that are given to us. Look at what it says here. Look again with me at Daniel 9, and then over at, look at verse 24 again. I'm sorry, 25. Know therefore, and understand, that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And so that's describing the beginning of this 70 weeks. It would be, be marked by a seven-week beginning. But most scholars believe that there's something contextually even in the, the mindset of an of a ancient Jewish writer that would break these up, but there's no reason to necessarily look at these as a, a chronological break, right? But we're supposed to look at these as a 70-year fulfillment in totality. So who is it that decreed for the temple to be rebuilt. Because when we think about this, we go, well, if we can figure out who decreed for the temple to be rebuilt, we can go from his decree and count 490 years, and we'll, we'll get somewhere. We'll know what's going to happen. But so I would say that this is most likely Cyrus, king of Persia, who fits the bill. But I'm, I'm willing to be wrong on that. In Ezra chapter 1, we have a very specific record of Cyrus speaking. We're going to reference that. So Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. But then also a prophecy from Isaiah is made about Cyrus. So Isaiah 44, 28. I'll put it on the screen. I won't put it on the screen. There. Is it there? <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, anyway. Isaiah 44, 28 says, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd? This is Isaiah prophesying. And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundations shall be laid. This is an ancient prophecy from Isaiah about Cyrus before Cyrus is even on the scene. Then in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
Whoever is among you of all the people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea or Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Chronologically, what's happening here is Cyrus comes on the scene at the end of Daniel's exile. Sixty-six years have already come, come, and then by the time the 70 years comes to an end that Jeremiah prophesied, guess who's on the scene asking for the rebuilding of the temple? It's Cyrus. Now, that's one interpretation. I side with that interpretation, but there's others because Nehemiah also called for a rebuilding of the temple. And there's some pretty impressive numbers that when you take that particular decree to build the temple and you count exactly 483 years, because this viewpoint actually saves the last week for the end times in our future, but exactly 483 years from Nehemiah's decree is April 6th, the time that Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey to the day. Exactly 483 years, going by an ancient calendar, 360-day years. And that's impressive, right? Now, that, that's cool. And I'm fine if, if it's not Cyrus and it's Nehemiah. I, I, that's fine. For the sake of time, though, and because I, I really cannot be dogmatic about these things, let me just rapid-fire some other things that regard my position on this thing as a whole. And then, and then we're going to step back and look at the fulfillment of Jesus Christ in terms of all of this prophecy. So, I hold the view that the 70 weeks of years was accomplished in the coming of Jesus Christ completely. That would be known as a preterist view, that is meaning past fulfillment, but I'm a partial preterist in that I don't believe that Jesus has already come a second time. We're still waiting on future prophecies to be fulfilled. But in terms of the majority of what Daniel is speaking about, I see that there is ample evidence to show that this stuff was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And even just reading plainly, even like a child, that these 70 weeks were to encapsulate the fulfillment of, of something. So these were accomplished in the coming of Jesus, his life, his cross, his resurrection, and then ultimately in the destruction and the judgment against Jerusalem in 70 AD. All right, so when you re if you read this context again and you read about the destruction that comes at the end of this chapter, um, that would be the destruction that comes upon Jerusalem. The first 69 weeks of the prophecy bring us to the point in history when Jesus arrives on the scene. Whether it's the triumphal entry or the birth of Jesus Christ, depending on which emperor decreed the building of the temple, which there's some disagreement there. Either way, it brings us to the vicinity of Christ coming on the scene as Daniel has prophesied. That's pretty much agreed on by all views, that those first 69 weeks take us up to the time of Jesus. The anointed one... So let's read on a little bit further just so you can get the context from Scripture itself. This is verse 26. It says, And after the 62 weeks, and also the 7 weeks, because the 7 weeks has already been mentioned. So after the 62 and 7 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. So how many years have gone by? How many weeks have gone by? 69 weeks. Okay, so 69 weeks have gone by, and it says, An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have... Nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. So, the 69 weeks taking us up to the time of Jesus, the anointed one who would be cut off, versus, verse 26 of Daniel, is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He would be 
cut off from his people. And, and when you do a word study on that phrase, cut off, it so many times refers to death. The cutting off of, the peep, of a person from his people. Uh, the bringing to an end of a, per, of a person's life. So it makes complete sense that this cutting off would be referring to the death of this particular person. The coming of the Messiah. And he would be cut off from his people. And that was his death for sinners. The people of the prince to come. There's some confusion there because now we have the Messiah who is the anointed one. And then it says the people of the prince who is to come. So who are those people and who is that prince? Is it still Jesus or is it another figure that comes onto the scene? But I believe that the people of the prince to come are those Gentile Roman people who persecuted and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Shortly after Jesus even predicted it himself in Matthew chapter 24. He speaks of this time where great calamity would come upon Jerusalem and even told his disciples, not one stone will be left upon another. This temple is coming down. It's going to come down. But as the Roman people destroyed the temple and Jerusalem, they desecrated the temple with its pagan images. They killed over a million Jews with bodies even piled around the altar of the temple itself. This is in history, people. And their commander even entering and defiling the most holy place, Titus. Another convincing reason to believe that this all took place in the first century is, is like I mentioned, Matthew 24. Jesus told the disciples at that time, quote, the words of Jesus, when you see the abomination that brings desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Pretty convincing to me that Jesus said this generation would see what? Just this generation would see. He said, open your eyes, disciples, you will see when you see the abomination that brings desolation. And I know that a popular view, and this has already been mentioned, but a popular view is to look for a future abomination of desolation. And that may be the case. Of course, what does that require? Another temple. Which you have people waiting for the temple to be built. There are institutes surrounding this idea that there are Jews that are prepared to build a temple, will it actually be built? I don't know. I don't think so. But some do. And wherever you stand on that, that's between you and the Lord and looking at Scripture, that's fine. But I do believe that Jesus was speaking to his people of that day that in that temple, the abomination of desolation would be seen. Then he mentions this strong covenant. The strong covenant with many for a period of one week or seven years. And that's mentioned in verse 27. So look at 27 so you can see it on the page. It says, He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And that's the final week. We've already came up to the 69 weeks. That means there's one week left. One more period of seven years. The question is, was that already fulfilled or is that future? Right? That, that is the question, and that's the, the major debate among scholars and when they study this text. So who is the person who made the covenant? And when, has that, when will that be fulfilled, or has it been already? It's popularly viewed that that seven-year period is a seven-year peace treaty or a covenant during the time of the great tribulation that comes after a pre-tribulation rapture and before the second coming of Christ. This necessitates a gap, right? And this, this is not something I'm making up, but this is, there's a gap theory in Genesis, but this is another gap theory that 
between the 69th and 70 weeks, there's a gap, and we're actually living right now in that gap. That's, that's one view. And we're still waiting for the 70, 70th week that is still to come. That view does necessitate a gap of at least a couple thousand years between the 69th and 70th week that Gabriel prophesied. But the question again is, is in the context of what we're reading, is there a gap? And I just don't believe that that's necessary based on just reading the text in Daniel 9. Verse 25 and 26 tell us that for 69 weeks or 483 years, the Jews will have their temple. Where does it say this? Look with me at verse 25 and 26 so you can really see it. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again. So for 62 weeks and seven weeks, and a total of 69 weeks, 483 years, there will be another Jewish temple. Well, guess what? There was. Cyrus ordered for the rebuilding of it. And it would be in a troubled time, but then the Messiah would come and would be cut off. After that time, the anointed one will come, be cut off, and soon after that, the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed. And I see this lines up perfectly with Jesus coming on the scene and fulfilling the law and the prophets, the temple being destroyed, and then he himself being the final sacrifice. Somewhere in the midst of this final week, the text tells us that sacrifices will end as well. Where does it say that? Look at this. After the strong covenant, verse 27, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So, we have this half of a week, which clearly in our mind, if we've read or heard any Bible prophecy, we think three and a half years. And so, if there is a, a pre-trib, or excuse me, if there is a future tribulation, hasn't it been divided into a three and a half year period, with the worst of those years being the second three and a half years? This tells us that somewhere in the midst of that final week, sacrifices will end. So, who brings an end to sacrifice? Is it Jesus? Or is it a coming Antichrist who will bring an end to the sacrifices of a future temple? That's what, we're at, that's what we're talking about. If it's the future, then it necessitates a rebuilding of a third temple and the reinstituting of sacrifices that the Antichrist in our future will bring to an end. Or, or this is, and, I, and this is the view that I hold, that this is Jesus bringing an end to sacrifice. Three and a half years is also the period of his lifespan after coming onto the scene in his ministry, his baptism, his anointing. Three and a half years in, he is cut off. And what does he do? He becomes the final sacrifice. And from that period on, there is a downgrade, a, a renewal of the Jewish people, many Jews coming to, to know Jesus Christ, setting aside the sacrificial system, and then ultimately at, the 70, at 70 AD, the entire temple being destroyed. Some scholars have viewed the baptism of Jesus as the beginning of the final week. Like I said, with three and a half years being the length of his ministry leading up to his death, and then what's the covenant that he makes? For, it, says for, it says this, that he, there, a covenant, a strong covenant is made. So who makes that covenant? Again, there are many views on this. Um, but based on the context, I, I really believe that we can, and you can go either way, right? I'm not going to be dogmatic about this. 
But I do believe that Jesus fulfilled everything that is necessary for us to look at this and say, in that 70-week period, Jesus Christ fulfilled all of it. So there are many views, but I find a lot of consistency looking at the context. I'm comfortable concluding that this prophecy was meant to tell Israel that within 490 years, Jesus would come and bring an end to the greatest enemy, which is sin. That within that period, something would happen that would change the course of all the world. His life would fulfill the requirement of the law, and his death would be the final sacrifice that would atone for those who put their trust in him. That would have been a cataclysmic thing at the end of the age, the end of the age for the Jewish people, the end of an entire system of sacrificing thousands upon thousands upon thousands of bulls and goats for the temporary atonement of God's people. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and he says what? It's finished. It's, it's done. No more other sacrifices. I'm all you need. Glory to God. That is a good thing. That's my view. I invite you to consider it, or you may disagree with it, and that's okay. And I also reserve the right to change my view today, if I'd like to, or tomorrow, or the next day. Is that fair enough? Again, I would encourage you, as, as weighty and as difficult as that might be, and if you're new to the Bible, if you're, even if you're not a Christian and you're here, may this at least tell you that God's Word is that serious about the coming of Jesus Christ. And that this life is not all that we have. That God has written from the beginning to the end the story. And, at the, and the, the pinnacle of that story is the redemption of His people through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's what remains to be the focal point. So briefly, let's just walk through these six things that were brought up that would be completed, and this is how we'll wrap up the sermon. Number one, finish the transgressions. Two, put an end to sin. Three, atone for iniquity. Bring in everlasting righteousness. Seal up vision and prophecy and anoint a most holy place or person. If you put these six things in front of a child who knows the slightest bit about the story of the Bible, they're going to tell you who this is about. It's just like reading Isaiah 53, is it not? Hundreds of years before Jesus, and we can read these texts and we'll go, New City, who is this about? Who accomplishes these six things? Jesus Christ. You're not answering, so I'll answer for you. Jesus. You can. You can, you can answer. Shout it out. And herein we find the gospel in the book of Daniel once again. Praise God, right? That within the pages of Daniel, which is often confusing and, and, and causes people to get bogged down in numbers and all these things, the gospel is here in Daniel, and, and we need to see it. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it says, After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying this, The time is fulfilled. When Jesus says things like this, coming into his ministry, what's he talking about? He's talking about all that was said beforehand about him. The time is fulfilled. I love that he says that when he came onto the scene, not the time will be fulfilled, but right now, in my appearance, the time is fulfilled. I'm here now. I am what the prophets were telling you about, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Anointed One. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand, so do what? Repent 
and believe in the gospel. That is the great imperative of the kingdom. When you're face to face with the reality that this world isn't everything and there is another kingdom, well, Jesus is calling you to be a part of that kingdom. That is the gospel. Go from the kingdom of darkness over which you are ruler and you follow the prince of darkness, which is Satan himself, or you come into the kingdom of light over which Jesus is the king. So what was being fulfilled? What did Jesus say was being fulfilled? All the law and the prophets. And then finally Christ would be crucified. He would be cut off. And by his death he would atone for sins and do away with the sacrifices of bulls and goats forever. And this is how he would seal up, as Daniel or Gabriel prophesied, he would seal up or complete vision and prophecy. All that was said prior to Jesus in visions and prophecies was sealed up and brought to completion through the life of Jesus Christ. Did Jesus bring an end to sin? Let's see if we can check that off the list. Did he bring an end to sin? And this is where some people say, no, this part we're still waiting on because there's still sin here, right? You can see why there would be varying views here. Because we look at this list and we go, there's no way this is fulfilled completely in Jesus. We're waiting for Jesus to do this at the second coming. You can see why that view would come into play. But I do believe that Jesus, in the way that was intended, he brought an end to sin at his life, death, burial, and resurrection. He even said it, it was even said of him in John 1, Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. There was a very real sense in which by Jesus coming onto the scene and dying on the cross, he would take sin away. What is the worst part of sin? It's the consequence of it. It's what it does. It's the separation. It's the exclusion from the presence of God by living a sinful life, by being in sin. And Jesus came to do away with that. For those who trust in him, he does that very thing. What about the transgressor of the law? What about, does he do away with transgression? How can a transgressor of the law of God be forgiven of sin and made right before God? His or her sins must be atoned for, and that's what was on the list, to atone for iniquity. Check out this incredible verse, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 to 24. Which, by the way, the entire book of Hebrews is an incredible case for the fulfillment of Jesus, fulfilling all the law and the prophets. No more need for another sacrificial system. Those who contend for a temple that will not be rebuilt often refer to the entire book of Hebrews saying, why would God, after writing Hebrews, allow for another temple to come onto the scene and for a rebuilding of the sacrificial system again? If Hebrews says what it says. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He fulfills that specific Prophecy that should be done within that 70 year. He will take care of iniquity. He will atone for sins, and he did atone for sins. What about everlasting righteousness? What about everlasting righteousness? When you and I look at the cross of Jesus, we are not called 
to do something. When we look at the cross of Christ, we simply are called to be satisfied in the righteous payment of Jesus Christ. For anybody who ever struggles with doing enough for the Lord, is it enough? Can I do enough to satisfy Him, to please Him? That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is be satisfied in Jesus. Be satisfied in the payment that He made. It is simply enough. We look at the cross and we don't go, now what do we do? We look at the cross and we are satisfied in the righteous payment that he made. We are reminded that because of his love, he comes to unrighteous people, even to his enemies, and he bids us come to him to be satisfied in Christ and in his love. He certainly did bring in everlasting righteousness for those who trust in him. The temptation of the entire world is to try to be good enough and to only be satisfied when we've done enough. I would even be willing to say that many Christians, though they believe the gospel, continue on that vein of anti-gospel thinking that though we believe in Christ and his sacrifice, we still wonder if we've done enough or if we're doing enough. You don't need to wonder that. That's why faith in Christ, that's why we believe in sola fide, solus Christus, faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone. We rest there. We rest in the righteousness that is in Christ. We only need to be satisfied in Jesus and his love. Years later, we read these words of the prophet Simeon to the parents of Jesus at his dedication. You know, there were many people, and the reason they were waiting for Jesus and they knew to wait were because of prophecies like Daniel's. A Messiah was coming. And so you have people literally just waiting around in the temple, living out their old age, going... I, I, I got to see this day. I want to see the day where Jesus, the Messiah, comes. And look at this, Luke 2, 29 to 32. This is the, the prophet Simeon. Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace. This is at the dedication of Jesus. As you have promised, I have seen your salvation. This is what he says about seeing Jesus even as a young child, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. You also have the prophetess Anna. You have Simeon. You have the entire Jewish world waiting for Messiah to come. And he came, and he is a light. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. That's to you and me to the Gentile people, to every nation, tribe, and tongue. That is the gospel. That is the commission. That is why we go, because we believe these words are true. So the right response to this deep, deep topic, which I hope, though there was some depths, I hope it's just a little bit, a little bit clearer. Maybe not. I don't know. You guys confused? Clear? Good? Glory to God? Amen. All right. <laughs> when you look at this text, try not to get lost in the weeds. You'll come up with, you'll have your own viewpoint based on your studies, but what this is ultimately about in the context of Daniel, it's about Jesus Christ. Consider and understand what Jesus has done. He has fulfilled this. The right response is to rejoice in the Savior who greatly loved us and gave himself for us. Just as Gabriel told Daniel that he is greatly loved and then delivered this news as a response to his prayer for forgiveness for his people, we too can respond by saying, thank you, God, 
for loving us greatly and answering our desire, our plea, our deep plea for forgiveness and our need for reconciliation to God, you answered that in the person of Jesus Christ. You did that for us. And then pray because he hears us. We pray because he hears us and he knows the words before they even form on our tongues. And if God did what he said he would do in, in Jesus for that time, can we not trust him for our lives and the futures that we often fret about? If God did what he did and fulfilled his word through Christ, even if we are waiting for more future fulfillment, because I will submit that we are in a now and not yet scenario, much of what we long for will be finally completed and consummated when Jesus does return in glory and we are with him face to face. And it will all be completely done in terms of taking hold of the inheritance that we've been given. But that inheritance is very much ours now, church, for those who trust in Christ. But can we not trust him for our futures that we often fret over? I believe that we can. So let's turn our attention there. Let that be just a reminder again to look to Christ, to turn to Jesus, to believe in the gospel, to trust in him who fulfills all the righteous requirement of God. Amen, church? Let's pray together. Father, we give you the glory for the way you have been merciful to us in, in a deep text that can be daunting. But Lord, I thank you that in it we find the beauty of Jesus and the gospel fulfilled in, in Christ, the Savior of the world, the one who would take away the sins of the world and fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. All the law that we could not fulfill, the law that points out our sinfulness, the commands that stood against us, but they also pointed us to Jesus, the one who is perfect, the perfect sacrifice. Thank you for once and for all time being the sacrifice for sins. Thank you for imputing to us your righteousness through faith. I thank you also for prophecy, God. Thank you that there's much to be said and, and studied and learned. And we all confess that we often fall short in our understanding. And so we, we consign ourselves to, in the volume of the book, it is written of Jesus. Show us daily how your word points us to Christ our Savior. I pray you'd comfort souls today, God, that you'd comfort those that are fretting about the future and that we would find that if you can de deal with Daniel's day and the future of his people and promise him a Messiah and bring comfort to them as they wait, then we can look back on the sacrifice of Jesus and the completion of his work and find great comfort there. How will you not also give us all things? For you gave yourself for us. Lord, comfort your church. And then send us out because you are a light to the nations. And we want to be that light to the nations, God. We want to be a light to the people that we work with and our family and our, our neighbors. God, let us not bow to apathy or laziness or fear. But Lord, let us be bold. Let us be bold even as Daniel, but mostly as Jesus. We go in his name, Lord. Thank you. We give you the glory. Thank you for your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.